And the scene that we're reading tonight in Luke 23 is the scene to which the Old Testament had been pointing for centuries. And um, to make a statement like that should require us to feel the weight of how much anticipation, prophecies, and shadows, and types were before Christ. These Old Testament stories that were of different righteous sufferers and sacrificial systems and tabernacles and temples and these uh, Old Testament centuries longing for and leading toward the cross. Um, There's a, a preacher who said earlier this week, the smoke of the Old Testament sacrifices always blows in the direction of Calvary. And uh, I think the power of that image is to say all of those Old Testament offerings were pointing toward that event that we read about in Luke 23. This event of the Passover lamb being sacrificed. In the previous passage, what we were covering together in verses 13 to 25 is that with Pilate uh, releasing Barabbas and calling for Jesus to be crucified, and yet saying there's no guilt in this man, it's as if they, no matter how unwitting they were at the moment, it's as if they are putting forward the spotless lamb, the unblemished offering who will be sacrificed on the cross. Um, in Luke 23, the whole Bible in the Old Testament had been leaning toward the event where God was going to give His Son to bring about a new covenant. And um, we're not going to be surprised that in our passage tonight, there are a series of Old Testament allusions, uh, echoes that seem to be what the writers are using to write the text. What if we thought about it this way, that this is a New Testament account, but it's written with Old Testament ink. Nearly every verse in what we're going to cover tonight is alluding to some aspect of Old Testament hope, imagery, um, some kind of prophecy. And to think of it that way helps us to see this condensed account is thick with Old Testament resonance. We're to to sense that and rejoice in the continuity of God's plan across the ages. Look with me first at this man who renders assistance to Jesus. This man's name is Simon of Cyrene. His story is told in verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one. Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Now, that's his that's all he gets in Luke's gospel. That's that's Simon of Cyrene, some assistance that he renders an amazing verse. They led Jesus away and yet Jesus is going and he is weakened. He has suffered much. He has been flogged and he is unable to carry the cross as he ought Now, according to um, Matthew's gospel, like in Matthew 5.41, the Sermon on the Mount says that if a uh, Roman soldier uh, calls you to go a mile, you should go two miles. So uh, at least if someone calls you to go one, go two. An implication would be someone like a Roman soldier could ask you to do that, compel you to do that. If we uh, just have in mind how a Roman soldier could say, you help with this, and they had that kind of authority and discretion to uh, just pull in from the crowd. Well, here is someone that they, they seized. Uh, verse 26, 
They weren't looking for volunteers. They seized Simon of Cyrene. I don't know if they just took him by the elbow and said, you're going to come with us. That had to be very confusing. Simon of Cyrene didn't sign up for this. It wasn't like he was on the rotation for this kind of thing. They've seized him. He's not even from Jerusalem. Simon of Cyrene, which is modern day Libya. Uh, Simon of Cyrene was coming in from the country and they laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Every once in a while around Easter time in Louisville, I've occasionally seen individuals with a big wooden cross walking down sidewalks. And uh, it's to draw attention to uh, the passers-by and drivers-by about uh, the crucifixion and the cross, just to put in their mind a graphic depiction. You should know that uh, the practice of crucifixion was that the vertical beam was already at the site, and that the horizontal beam is what you would carry. Um, In a weakened, flogged state, very little weight would be able to be lifted anyway. And so on Jesus' back, what they lay is this horizontal beam for him to carry to the place of crucifixion where it will all be fastened together with him on it. Um, So what we should picture, I think, is the horizontal beam unable to be carried by Jesus, even though it wasn't even the entirety of the cross. And then they seize this man, Simon of Cyrene, who is coming in from the country. Now, if if his name is Simon... Um, it's likely that he is a Jew coming in for the Passover. Coming into the country, uh, coming in from the country, this probably means he has been staying outside and has arrived like Jesus and his disciples who stood outside, now coming to Jerusalem. Um, Why would I construct the scene that way? Well, he's from Cyrene. That is not next to Jerusalem. And this is the early morning where Jesus will be crucified in the early hours of Friday. This man has likely traveled to Jerusalem for Passover, and he's staying outside of the city at night. So when he's coming in from the country, he didn't like just show up from Libya, okay? He's probably been in the vicinity, arriving now in the early morning to Jerusalem like many of the Passover travelers would be. And if this is a reasonable construction of the scene, I think it's the most plausible uh, way to read it. He's not alone. We know from Mark's gospel, he has two sons named Rufus and Alexander, and they are going to be uh, accompanying him, just as families would often travel together to the Passover. But this is the weird twist in it, everybody. Okay, so in verse 26, here, these young boys, Rufus and Alexander, they see soldiers approach their father, take him and usher him to a place where here's this weakened man who's completely bloodied and depleted, and he's got this cross beam that he can't carry, and they lay it on Simon's back. It's a very graphic scene. I wonder what that would do to a man. I wonder how this would impact him. Um, New Testament scholars are probably right who suggest the reason we know Simon and where he was from and his two children is because these people were not only worshipers of the living God coming to the feast of the Passover. This event was impactful for Simon in a way that's hard to put into words. Um, That here is the man on whose back is laid the cross of Jesus. This is the kind of story you tell in the generations to come. Uh, Here, if you could imagine Rufus and Alexander growing up and having children, you know, Dad, tell your grandchildren again that time you carried the cross of Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, that's the kind of story, like, who has that? And Simon of Cyrene, 
is the man providentially appointed at that moment in history where the cross of Jesus is laid on him. Uh, So here's this Jewish worshiper coming in with his family to celebrate Passover, and he's going to carry the cross for the very Lamb of God. He's not prepared for this. How could you be? There's no training for this. There's no expectation of this. And now all that uh, has been leading up in all those previous Passovers to this one, um, Simon of Cyrene has the most important uh, job and experience yet at any Passover He's ever attended. Even his name, Simon, it's interesting because there is a disciple named Simon, Simon Peter. Um, Simon Peter of Capernaum is nowhere to be found. Uh, Simon Peter of Capernaum had recently denied Jesus and wept bitterly. Um, Simon is not a 12 disciple that at this point had been marked with his faithfulness. And uh, here's a different Simon. Here's a Simon who steps in the gap seized by the Roman soldiers and succumbs to uh, their order. And uh, perhaps there was willingness on his part too. And they're going to have him carry this. And all this means is we need your back and shoulders to get us from here to there. And then, you know, then your, uh, your job is done. But people have noticed how remarkable it is that Luke says he's carrying it behind Jesus. So here's Jesus walking. And what is Simon carrying? They've laid on him the cross. Earlier in Luke's gospel, Jesus had said to them, if any man desires to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And this is, if you will, a living, breathing example of someone actually keeping up with the pace of Jesus, stumbling toward the cross behind him with a cross on their shoulders. This is, in the the mysterious plan of God, a graphic picture of discipleship, willing to follow Jesus with a cross. And this uh, picture of discipleship is this death penalty image. That's what a cross was. It was a one-way trip. You went to a cross, um, and, uh, or you carried your cross beam, and it was a one-way trip. There's no coming back. They know how to crucify people. You'd already been brutally weakened by the uh, beating and the flogging. And now he's going out to that place. So Simon of Cyrene, likely becoming a believer as a result of this, already a worshiper of Yahweh, along with his sons Rufus and Alexander. Um, in uh, the book of Romans, Paul mentions a boy named Rufus, a believer named Rufus, and some have suggested it's the same one, uh, perhaps. It's not that there was only one Rufus in the ancient world, but perhaps among the early church, of which Paul was a participant, uh, they would have known him. Now in verses 27 to 31, who else is there? Well, we've got Simon. He's been conscripted into this, okay? And, um, and, who, and we've got a multitude of people, and they're following him too. And, and I, I think we should imagine sympathizers, lamenters who are not like the crucify him, crucify him crowd. Now, those people also followed, okay? There are some mockers who were at the cross, soldiers who were opposing Jesus, but there is mourning and lamenting for Jesus in verse 27, which means not every inhabitant in Jerusalem has turned against Jesus. That's not what we're to get from the the crucify him crowd, okay? Um, uh, There are a significant number of a a mob who turned against Jesus to make Pilate uh, give in to them. But in verse 27, accompanying Jesus is a great multitude of the people and women who were mourning and lamenting for him. And this could be an allusion to Zechariah chapter 12. And in Zechariah 12, there is this scene of uh, one who is going to be pierced. 
And in Zechariah 12, and in verse 10, um, starting in verse 10, Zechariah 12.10, we read, And I pour out, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they've pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for a child. They shall weep bitterly over him as one weeps for the firstborn. And in verse 11, on that day, the morning in Jerusalem, not early morning, we're talking about M-O-U-R-N still, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as uh, the morning in some of these other places it names. Um, in, in Luke 23, the mourning and lamenting for the one who will be crucified seems to recall the expectation of the scene in Jerusalem prophesied from Zechariah 12. Jesus is popular with many of the people, but now there is a brokenness and a mourning that is mixed into all of that. It's become a very emotionally complicated situation. Many of them delight to see Jesus on the way to die. Others are absolutely undone by going to see him on his way to death. And in verse 28, he turns to them. And in this moment, you know, these aren't his very last words because he's not even on the cross. And he's not even carrying the cross beam right now. Simon of Cyrene behind him is. But Jesus turns to these women who are accompanying him. And he addresses them as daughters of Jerusalem. It's a very deliberate phrase. He, he didn't have to address them at all. He could just speak to them, turning to them. But by calling him that, he sounds like a prophet. That seems to be the idea. He sounds like a prophet who in Isaiah or in Zephaniah or in Zechariah would refer to the daughters of Zion or the daughters of Jerusalem. It's a way of talking about the people there. And he says, do not weep for me. It would make sense that they are weeping for him. After all, if they're at all inclined toward him spiritually, they're broken and lamenting and mourning over the event. He tells them, that's not the thing that needs to be weighing upon you as much as this next thing. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Now, why would these inhabitants of Jerusalem need to be lamenting for themselves and for their children? Why would he address them as daughters of Jerusalem and say, you should be broken for you and for your generation to come? What would they face? And I think this is a scene, which it's only in Luke's gospel, but it's a callback to Luke 21, when Jesus promised that the generation of his contemporaries would face the assaults of Rome and Jerusalem, a 70 AD temple destruction, and it would be an absolute abominable experience for the inhabitants of the city. He had told them not just in Luke 21, but in Matthew and Mark's Olivet Discourses, if anyone's inside the city, flee to the mountains. Get out if you can. You will want refuge. You will want safety. If you're already outside the city, don't even think about coming in when these events unfold. Jesus is one person that the Romans are putting to death. And I think Jesus is saying, this is not going to be the last thing the Romans do. In other words, they're putting me to death and you're weeping for me. You should be weeping for yourselves. These enemies, these Roman soldiers, the, the Roman armies, these occupiers of your land, they will turn against the city. So you should weep for you and you should weep for your children. And in verse 29, for behold, the days are coming when they, and I think he means the, the inhabitants or the people facing those times, they'll say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. That's a reversal of a situation. You would not think of that 
as something that is blessed. That's an odd beatitude. Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nourished. What's he getting at? Well, in the 70 AD temple destruction, he said to them in Luke 21, Matthew and Mark's Olivet discourses are the same way, that it will be difficult for those who are pregnant. It will be difficult for nursing mothers when these days of vengeance fall upon you. This is not the second coming of Christ that's in view. He's talking about the temporal local judgment. And they will need to move and move so quickly and with such haste that they will be relieved. That they are not encumbered by the kinds of things others would be encumbered by in an emergency. Not because the children aren't a blessing. It's the local judgment that calls to mind this odd beatitude. The barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. He says, you should weep for you and your children. And these days that are coming that you should weep over are so great that in verse 30, they will say to the mountains, fall on us and the hills cover us. Now, I think all of this is referring to the fall of Jerusalem that's coming in 70 AD. They will desire a quick death. The tragedy will be so great and so fierce. And then in verse 31, for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? I think Jesus right there is trying to make a statement between comparing his present cross journey and the future decades when that 70 AD temple destruction happens. These things when the wood is green is what he's going through. And what will happen when the wood is dry, that's what's coming. Now, the question is, what does he mean by verse 31? If they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Like, why did he start talking about the color of wood? And what does that have anything to do with his present moment and the coming destruction? Well, I think it has to do with what most easily burns. And in this case... Um, it's just more difficult to burn green wood. And yet Jesus's experience, it, it is, it is a, an experience that right now the fury of Rome is being aimed against him, the Jewish leaders alongside, and therefore Jesus is on the receiving end of judgment. And that's when the wood is green. And he's one person that the Roman Empire is isolating in this case and has recently gone through his proceedings and heading to the cross What's coming on Jerusalem, it will be in a time when the wood is no longer green, but dry, where it's much easier to burn and catches more quickly and burns more. And I think he's talking about the difference between his present experience and their coming citywide judgment and destruction under Rome. So I think that's the best effort to try to get at the, the current green situation, if you will, but then even more prepared for judgment to come. The generation of Jesus will face, if you will, in a dry wood kind of sense, the fiery judgment of the Romans upon their city and temple. And Jesus has told them not one stone on the temple will be left. It will all come down. Uh, So he's trying to say, don't just weep for me. The wood is green. Weep for yourselves and your children. There will come a time when the wood is dry and the fire and the fury of Rome will be greater than you see today. Um, So I, I think he's wanting to stir their lament but to get them to see more trouble is coming. Now in verses 32 to 33, we move from that place of journeying to the cross to the other criminals and the crucifixion in verses 32 and 33. Two others 
who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Uh, So here's Jesus on the cross of Barabbas and he's in the middle. Barabbas is not there. Jesus is hanged in his place. And now two others, criminals. This is a word that is more than a, a mere thief. I mentioned this again this morning, and I know I've said it in years past when we've been in other Gospels, but it always bears repeating that um, he's not crucified between two thieves as much as it is two insurrectionists. That's that's a lot more pressing of an issue politically. Um, They were crucifying people that they believe were a threat to the Roman um, will and the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, they call it. So here these criminals are criminals in the eyes of Rome politically. And they are led away to be put to death with him. Uh, Now, I don't know if anybody's carrying their crosses. I don't know if uh, any of uh, the others were conscripted like Simon of Cyrene to help, but they were probably flogged as well. In verse 33, they come to a place sometimes called Golgotha, which is a word that means the skull. So what, what Luke gives you is, is essentially the translation of the term Golgotha. They came to the place called the skull. Why is it called that? Well, nobody knows dogmatically why. A couple suggestions in history have been maybe that's because of all the collections of bones and dead bodies. Um, and therefore it's called the skull because it's a place where people go to die. That's possible, but some historians and archaeologists have also suggested that the shape of the place is interesting. It could have been that the shape of the place was like a skull, meaning that it is an appropriate, it's an appropriate name for such a location geographically. So they come to this location, and there they crucified him and the criminals. One on his right and one on his left. Um, In this moment, friends, we're not given any details about crucifixion, are we? It just says they crucified him. But it's helpful to remember that crucifixion could be done with rope or with nails. In the ancient world, bodies have been discovered. uh, Some that were uh, crucified with rope to wood and others with nails to wood. Uh, Because um, the New Testament letters speak of Jesus being nailed to the cross, like in Colossians 2. And Jesus tells Thomas to see the place where the nails were in his hands. Um, we, uh, we can see that the manner of crucifixion was through nails in Jesus' case, though crucifixion wasn't limited to using nails. Some people were tied up there uh, with ropes. And the idea is that you would hang and lose blood and, and essentially asphyxiate eventually. Um, and they would hasten this if they broke your legs because you couldn't push up to breathe well anymore. It was a long and excruciating way to die publicly. You were unclothed so that they would put you in this public place to humiliate and shame you as much as possible. It was well known that uh, birds and other uh, um, predatory uh, creatures would uh, seek to avail themselves on the helpless and vulnerable victims. Um, when you picture someone on a cross, I don't think you should imagine someone you know, elevated 10 feet high. It's, it was actually quite common for the crucified victim to be quite low to the ground so that they could be easily accessed by the soldiers and, uh, in order to put them up and to take them down and to break their legs. Um, nobody's having to get a step ladder, likely. It's just enough to where they're off of the ground and held there by nails or by ropes. And with this language, there they crucified him. Luke has just summarized for you 
this shameful experience publicly with another criminal on his right and another on his left. Jesus is counted among the transgressors. This is an allusion to um, uh, what we saw earlier in Luke 22. Luke 22, verse 37. This scripture must be fulfilled in me, Jesus said, and he was numbered with the transgressors. That's from Isaiah 53, 12. Jesus has been counted, if you will, among the criminals. He's been counted as one of them. That's what it means to be numbered among them. He'd already had several instances where his trials and his earlier arrest was a way of counting him as a transgressor. And here he is hanged on a cross, uh, counted among them. Earlier, his disciples had asked of Jesus in Mark 10, Grant us, Lord, one to be on your right hand and one to be on your left. And Jesus said in Mark 10, 38, you don't know what you're asking. Um, and I wonder if any who were familiar with those kinds of teachings, uh, even including John, who would have been nearby, um, if they recalled that here, here is Jesus, and we've asked to be on the right and left of Jesus, and in an earthly sense before glory, look at those who are actually on his right and his left. They, they don't have, in their earthly temporal ways of thinking, a full sense of what it means to embrace all that Jesus has come to do. But they will learn. Here is someone on his right and on his left. And they're on crosses. So to, be, to reign with Jesus will require taking up one's own cross. And in verses 34 to 38, there are a series of words and actions. Famously, we can add up from Matthew to John seven sayings from the cross. And a few of them appear in Luke chapter 23. Jesus' statement from verses 34 to 38 is not only his statement, but some actions, some words and actions at the cross. Um, These conclude our passage tonight as we meditate on what is there, but we will not see tonight the death of Jesus. Um, we'll think about that uh, in, in future sermons in, uh, in this coming Sunday morning, um, the uh, language about the thief that is turning to Christ while on the cross and uh, praying to be remembered when he goes into paradise. But uh, we end tonight with some of these words and actions in verses 34 to 38. The first is a statement of Jesus, a prayer, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And I I want us to consider how the words of Jesus and the actions of Jesus from the cross, um, these are statements that are not normal for any crucified person. If someone is a criminal against Rome and they have risen up for insurrectionist purposes and they're dying on the cross, the typical cry would be for God's judgment to fall and his vengeance to be applied and... This is what's unusual, that Jesus on the cross would say things like, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. They do not truly recognize that they are crucifying the Son of God. They have rendered him guilty in their view. They have decided he is a messianic pretender and a fraud. And rather than crying out for vengeance and threats upon the executioners, oh, you'll get what's coming to you, you just wait. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they do. In fact, the Gospel of Luke is the only one that gives us this saying here. And in Acts, an imitation of Jesus seems to be in the mouth of Stephen, the first martyr recorded in the history of the Christian church. Acts 7 verse 60, Stephen is dying at the hands of his persecutors and he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. 
Uh, remarkably, then, we see Jesus in the Gospels, Father, forgive them. And then Stephen, in imitation of the Lord Jesus, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And I think J.C. Ryle is right. Perhaps this prayer was the first step toward the penitent thief's repentance. Think about how this thief in a moment, one of these two thieves will recognize we're here because we deserve to be. This man is not here because he deserves to be. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. When Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Ryle wants you to consider the thief. But then to consider, he says, perhaps it was one means of affecting the centurion who will declare the Lord a righteous man at his death. Moving the hearts of many other people who witnessed the crucifixion and beat their breasts and then went away. Ryle says perhaps the many thousands that are converted on the day of Pentecost, which would have included some of those who were crying out for the crucifixion of Jesus. Their conversion is owed to this prayer. So I think Ryle is giving us good things to think about. What Ryle is suggesting to you is here's Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them. And we should understand that to be a prayer. The Father answers in the scenes and stories and years to come. That people will come to know Christ who had been opposed to Christ or who had been completely wicked and unrighteous. And one of them will be the thief on the cross. It seems one of the answers to this prayer will be, pray- will be answered before Jesus even dies. But what's happening at the time of this prayer is the actions of the soldiers at the bottom of the cross, they cast lots to divide his garments. This further confirms that the crucified victims were typically to be unclothed. And uh, if Jesus's garments are there at the bottom, which this seems to imply, they are dividing it and casting lots to see who gets what. And yet, um, dividing the garments is something that recalls the book of Psalms. In Psalms, and in chapter 22, there is this scene in verse 6 where he says, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. And later in verse 18, they divide my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. Now, Luke doesn't even tell you he's citing the Psalms. He doesn't say, and as it's said in the book of Psalms, they cast lots. Luke requires, like all the Gospels do, a growing sensitivity to the Old Testament text so that we notice allusions and echoes that are present that might not always be explicitly identified, but that you realize, why did Luke tell us this? So that we see this entire scene from first to last as painted in the pictures of Old Testament language. And in Psalm 22, language is applied to the scene of Jesus. They cast lots to divide his garments. Now, Psalm 22 is written by David. Uh, One thing that you should see there is David sees himself as opposed and that people would uh, come against him so that his very garments, the garments of the king, would be fought over and uh, divided over by those casting lots. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the son of David, the true Davidic king, an heir to the forever throne, and David is a type of Christ. So here's Jesus fulfilling Psalm 22 in an escalated way. In other words, Psalm 22, 18, that they gambled and cast lots for his garments. That fits more appropriately in the life of Jesus than it even did for David. 
So they cast lots for his garments. And in verse 35, the people stood by watching. But the ruler scoffed. He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. You see, Psalm 22 said, I'm a worm and not a man, in verse 6. Scorned by mankind and despised, and all who see me mock me and wag their heads. When we read in verse 35 tonight that the people scoffed and that they said, he saved others, let him save himself. It's the Davidic uh, example of David in Psalm 22 being fulfilled again. Jesus is mocked upon the cross. They call for him to save himself because the Davidic king was supposed to bring victory. Here was the Christ, the king. So if you're the Christ, if he's really the king from God, then let him save himself. He's supposed to be able to bring deliverance. Well, let's let's let him start with himself and then we'll move on from there. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen one. And even the language chosen one could allude to, uh, to Isaiah 42 verse 1. Where the servant of the Lord was the beloved servant set apart for the purpose of God to deliver um, in God's plan. And in Isaiah 42 1, perhaps that chosen language appears here now in verse 35. All of these people are not trying to have as their primary goal, all right, well, we want to make sure we're fulfilling all the you know, pictures of Scripture in the Old Testament. It's just that in God's providence, that is exactly what's happening. All the mockery and the gambling for the garments, the scoffing in the language of Christ as a chosen one, the language of, Father, forgive them. There is a background in the Old Testament That the beauty of the cross shines in light of. The soldiers mocked him in verse 36. Coming up and offering him sour wine. This also recalls a psalm of David. Psalm 69, 21. David says, they gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. When Luke tells you these soldiers brought him sour wine. Why do you, as a reader, need to know what the soldiers brought to Jesus? Because you need to see that Jesus is the Davidic king fulfilling the Old Testament. That's what Luke wants you to notice. He wants you to see he's narrating the fulfillment of the Son of God's crucifixion foreshadowed by David's own example. The soldiers mocked him. They thought, uh, we should give him some sour wine. This is probably meant as a joke because it's preceded by mocking in verse 36. And then in verse 37, the language, if you're the king of Jews, save yourselves. So I don't think they're trying to help him. Um, I I think it's a tease and a joke, even though this kind of wine was often what the soldiers would drink. This seems to be an act of uh, of, of, uh, like they're pretending to help him or pretending to aid him. It's cruelty, similar to when they put a crown on him, but it was made of thorns. And when they put a cloak and a robe on him and hailed him as the king. But they beat him with the, the reed, and they didn't believe that garment said anything of meaning. All of this is a kind of theater for them, and they're entering into it. The Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers, all of this is a kind of play to them. And it's cruel, and it's belittling, and it's demeaning, and it fulfills exactly what the text of Scripture said. In verse 37, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. King of the Jews. You see, not only was that their mockery, why would that title stand out to them? It's not that the Roman soldiers spent time thinking about the Torah, the Old Testament books from Genesis to Deuteronomy, and thinking about the hope of the Messiah. That wasn't the typical Roman soldier. And why are they doing this? 
Because the sign above him says this. In verse 38, there was an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. And so they think this is funny. This seems to be the accusation, right? They had said, the Jews did, to the Romans, that uh, he's a threat. He's a king. And even though Pilate conversed with Jesus, and even though Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world, and Pilate said, then I don't find any guilt in this man. I'm going to punish him and release him. The inscription over him still had the charge. Now we know, according to John's gospel, this did not actually sit well with the way it was worded with the Jewish leaders. Because it it actually looks like from a passersby, here is the king of the Jews and they're crucifying him. And that doesn't look good. The Jews said to Pilate in John 19, 19, um, that they objected to it and they wanted it to be that he claimed to be. But instead it read Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And Pilate put it in Aramaic, in Latin and in Greek. And so there, if you will, in a multilingual way for the world, so to speak, to listen, here is the king. And this isn't Pilate's intention to make an evangelistic point. Pilate's just trying to give give the Jews what they wanted. And the Jews don't want anyone to misunderstand what's happening. And yet in the province of God, despite the intentions of the Jews and the fumbling of Pilate throughout the whole episode, it's being announced In languages of the world, here is the king. Here is the king. Such an ironic scene. Here's the son of God. Here's the Christ. Here's the chosen one. The inscription itself says it. When we look at this scene, and he's unclothed, and he is crucified, and he is in anguish, and the curse is upon his head, likely even the crown of thorns still I think back to the early parts of the Bible with Genesis and Adam when they were naked and not ashamed. And even when they left the Garden of Eden in exile, God provided skins of garments for them. And the priests weren't to uh, uh, minister in the tabernacle or the temple unclothed. They had certain linen garments and especially the very ostentatious uh, portrayal of the high priest's garments. He didn't look like any of the other Israelites with the way he was dressed And here, the Son of God, the last Adam, is experiencing shame. And the shame of the spiritual side of things is being publicly portrayed. It's being publicly portrayed because the wages of sin is death and the transgression and shame of all of our iniquities is upon him. And one way that's being communicated is through the physical embarrassment, shame, and humiliation of the cross. Because again... The thief on his right, I hear I go saying thief, the, uh, the criminal on his right and the insurrectionist on his left, these people were also crucified. What makes the crucifixion in the middle any different? Well, Jesus is the last Adam. And Jesus is the one who came with no guilt, and yet the sin of the world is being placed upon his head. He is the one who's fulfilling Scripture. The sour wine and the mockery and the casting of lots for the garments and all all of the scoffing and the titles they're casting out with all of their theater acting. You see, all of that's different from the one on his right and the one on his left. In the middle, this man in the middle, this last Adam is experiencing the shame of sin all in the fulfillment of the word of God. And so as we read this scene... And we see Simon of Cyrene taking the horizontal bar, 
We imagine Christ being fastened to this with nails, raised up a bit above the ground, and then for hours and hours, mocked and ridiculed. And yet, what's on his lips? Father, forgive them. And his very cross will be the grounds for why such atonement or forgiveness would be justified. How is it that all of the mockers and the scorners and the unbelieving and the unrighteous and the wicked and the Gentiles and the Jews, how is it that they would ever experience forgiveness? It will be because of the very death they aimed to perpetrate. It will be his atoning work, which is the grounds not only for their forgiveness, but that in bearing their shame, they can be once again clothed, not with skins of garments, but with the righteousness of the Christ himself, that he, as God's chosen one, has been fulfilling all the scriptures. And indeed, uh, that preacher is right who spoke of those Old Testament offerings. The smoke of all the Old Testament sacrifices blows in the direction of Calvary. Here, on the time of the cross, the Passover lambs would be gathered and lines would be formed and Passover lambs begin to be slain. And here on that very Passover day, the Lamb of God without blemish given for the sin of the world. Let's pray.